This morning, we're talking about uh, ethics of the kingdom. We've got two Sundays left on Zoom, so I'm just going to do a two-part um, message here about the ethics of the kingdom from Hebrews uh, 13. And, you know, we're people of the book, and we care about Scripture. We care about what Scripture says. Uh, and whenever, you know, whenever preachers put together a sermon or a message, we, we try not to make it boring. We don't want it to be boring because the Word of God is active and living, but, you know, if we're not careful, we can kill it. So uh, my goal this morning is to just talk about the relevance of something written 21 centuries ago. You know, the entire New Testament uh, breaks down into theology and practice. Essentially, it's what we do should be an outgrowth of what we believe. Uh, we might call it doctrine of doctrine and duty. Uh, theologians call these the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. And the imperative that we have is, you know, to live good, righteous, ethical lives. But those follow the indicatives uh, that God loves us. That's the indicative. God loves us. Christ died for us. By grace, we're now a part of the kingdom of God. And so living out the ethics of the kingdom is what we might call uh, stewarding the grace we've been given. Uh, we all understand the concept of stewarding, I think. Um, when you pay your, uh, your bills, you're stewarding uh, your finances. Uh, when you love and care for your family, you're stewarding relationships. Um, when you try not to waste your time with uh, fruitless distractions, you're stewarding your time. And so living uh, out God's commands is stewarding grace. We've been given grace by God, and we want to steward that grace. So it's important for us to talk about this because uh, the Christian faith can never be reduced to rules or a list of rules. Whenever we talk about ethics or ethical commands in scripture, um, it's important for us, although some people have characterized the faith that we have as a list of rules. And the reason why it's not is because God cares more about the heart. And if it was just a list of rules, and you find this in, in legalistic circles, we could just check off a box and say, well, I've done that, and, and now I'm free to do anything else I want. And so we don't want to think that way. We don't want to live that way. We want the very heart of God to take root in our hearts. Um, we're, we're talking about the ethics of the kingdom from the book of Hebrews. And this passage is from the very end of Hebrews. And Hebrews was written to uh, Jewish Christians in the Roman Empire. And this little list of ethics here is given at the end of a bunch of doctrine and theology about who Jesus is and why his sacrificial death saves us. And at the very end of this book, it concludes with the duty of stewarding our faith. And we've got a slide here I want to put up on the screen, Hebrews 1 through 6. Larry, if we can do that. <clears throat> Let brotherly love continue Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels without knowing it or unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money 
and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let me just offer a little prayer before we um, spend a few moments sort of unpacking this. Father, thanks for all of those that are gathered here by Zoom. Uh, thanks, Lord, for your word. We pray that this would be um, inspired by your, your Holy Spirit and illuminated um, into our hearts that we might um, be encouraged to live for you and steward the grace you've given us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you stare long enough at that passage, and hopefully some of you have it open on your phones or your devices, or you have a Bible open in front of you, if you stare long enough at that passage we just read, you can see how anyone who embodies those ethics are swimming upstream against a cultural current that believes just the opposite. Isn't that right? I mean, our cultural climate is essentially the exact opposite of a passage like this. So I've, I'll just sort of uh, iterate what, where, what our culture might say in reverse. Do not continue loving others, especially if they get on your nerves or annoy you. Neglect hospitality to strangers because, hey, you can't trust anyone. Forget those who are imprisoned because, well, they probably deserve to be there. Um, disregard marriage. It's antiquated anyway. And pursue whatever sexual longings make you feel happy, for you will never be judged. Make your life's mission the pursuit of money and never be content with what you have because, well, you only live once. Now, for those of you who just jumped into our Zoom meeting, you may be thinking, what in the world are these people teaching? I am articulating the opposite of a passage of scripture in Hebrews. And as I read this this week, and we had a session meeting on Wednesday, and the elders and I, we, we sort of talked about this passage and how it seems like our cultural climate is the exact opposite. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the things I want to do is I want to visualize the ethical points here in this verse. So, Larry, let's move to the next slide. And it's a two-part message today, and, and I've only got uh, a certain amount of time, so I'll just talk about half of these. But essentially, it says... It teaches us about loving each other with brotherly affection, the duty of hospitality, caring for those in special need, faithfulness in marriage, and trusting in God's provision. And the first one I want us to look at is pursuing brotherly affection. Now, commands often work this way, ethical commands. And the first one, let brotherly love continue, is there because we're usually in danger of not continuing in brotherly love, right? Uh, sometimes we neglect loving one another, especially those of us who are in the family of God. Uh, we Sometimes we neglect it out of a genuine lack of love and sacrificial service. But to be honest with you, I think a lot of it has to do with how life in the modern world robs us of opportunities to show love toward each other. For example, we're mostly self-contained, self-reliant, and self-sufficient people, at least in our context here at Highlands Church. Um, not that I'm aware of, any of us are starving or naked or without uh, shelter. And that creates a challenge for us because Christian love often finds its expression when we need each other. 
you know, I've had people ask me during really challenging, cha challenging moments in my life since I've been at our church, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And they're genuinely sincere. And often my response is, hey, thanks, but I'm okay. And I mean it. You know, it's like, thanks for the sentiment, duly noted, but I'll be fine. Uh, and you've probably experienced something similar. Um, well, if there is anything material we need, we usually call an expert for that. You can dial a number and have someone take care of a downed limb from your tree or a plumbing problem. Uh, if you're, we're sick, we have medical insurance. If your car breaks down, the mechanic fixes it for a hefty fee, of course, but you know it'll be taken care of. And so there aren't a whole lot of opportunities to sort of come in clutch when we're in need. We just sort of outsource it to experts, and we understand that. That's life in our modern world. But in ancient and communal societies, love is often embodied in those very kind, those exact kind of actions. In fact, in communal Christian communities all over the world, um, they often live in a kind of, if not a compound, sort of communal living. And if somebody, you know, somebody has a roof problem, they make a phone call. And that Friday, 50 men are over the house redoing the roof and the women are cooking for them. And uh, that is often... Um, that is often how communal um, societies live, because love is embodied in those kind of actions. So we often find ourselves trying to create or manifest love for one another in thoughtful but infrequent and less significant ways. Hey, let's grab coffee, or hey, why don't you all come over for dinner? And after that's happened, we resolve to let uh, our love be mostly sentimental. Uh, now, don't hear me say that you shouldn't do that. You absolutely should invite people out to coffee. You absolutely should invite people over for dinner. That is an expression of love. But what I'm saying is that life in the modern world often creates a lack of crisis. And the very kind of lack of crisis um, means we often don't feel deeply bonded or indebted to one another. It means we have to find other ways to love each other. So the question is, how do we do that? right? The first command out of the gate is let brotherly affection or brotherly love continue. Sisterly love, it's the same thing. The Greek word is adelphoi. It doesn't mean just men, it's men and women. Um, but how do we do that? How do we find other ways to love each other when we're not living in crisis and we're not able to sort of come in clutch like that? Well, one thing we can do, and this may sound uh, passe, is to genuinely pray for people and let them know you're praying for them and follow up with them. And what that often does is create relational pathways for mutual love being opened up. The people in my life who let me know they're praying for me a lot, I am more prone to invite them into crisis. And I think this is one way in the modern world we can love one another is to press into people to let them know regularly we're praying for them. And what you'll find is people invite you into crisis. And what I guess what I'm getting at is in our modern world, there are challenges we have to love each other in the deep relational sort of uh, transparent ways that scripture and God wants and longs for us to love each other. Uh, you'll find people open up to you. They'll invite you in. Now, why don't we do that? Why don't we normally do that? Why don't we <clears throat> let people know we're praying for them and 
Maybe we do pray for them, but maybe we don't let them know. Maybe we don't reach out to them. Well, sometimes we don't want to do that. Sometimes we don't want to know people that intimately. We'd rather pray for them from afar. We actually don't really want to know other people's problems because, well, that obligates us. And we've got busy lives. We don't got time for that. We don't want to be saddled with other people's problems and burdens and be obligated to sort of come in clutch. But that is the vision of the gospel. And sometimes it goes against um, our nature to be private and, um, and to not want to open up ourselves. But the reason the writer of, the, of Hebrews is so concerned with it is because without brotherly love, there's no authentic worship. So, you know, what we're doing here, even on Zoom, um, without real authentic love for one another, our, our worship is sort of hollow. It's, it's just, it's just a, an exercise. And God calls us as kingdom people to a community of mutual love. In other words, love that's a two-way street. I'm not just loving you, but you're loving me back. And we're loving one another. And we're finding ways to press into each other's lives. And that's becoming harder and harder as we become more and more isolated. As we talked a little bit last week, the world we live in is mediated to us often through a screen. And our interaction with the world is often now anonymous. You can post things anonymous. You can buy things anonymous. You don't have to see somebody behind a checkout now. I mean, Amazon is huge because, you know, we buy things from a distance. There is, there is less and less human interaction. But God calls us to a community of mutual love. And um, without that kind of love, and now hear me for a second, uh, the church cannot under the church cannot uh, withstand the onslaught of the world's influence and vices. Did you hear what I said? I said that without that kind of mutual love for one another, loving others and being loved, we really can't endure the kind of onslaught. Uh, of the world's influence and vices. When you are connected deeply to people in love, there's accountability, there's transparency, people know what's going on in your life. If you fall into some addiction, they notice your behavior is a little different. And maybe that's one of the issues we have in our modern world is that um, we don't have that kind of um, transparency. Now, some people here may say, uh, I do have those relationships, Jordan, and that's great. I suspect that a majority of us do not. I suspect the majority of us do not have those kind of mutual relationships of uh, love and transparency and openness. And this leads to the second kingdom ethic, which is the duty of hospitality. And it's in verse two. We have a slide for it here. <clears throat> do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, that is a bizarre disclaimer, <laughs> uh, a very bizarre disclaimer. Um, and it's also a warning, you know, don't, don't neglect to be hospitable to people uh, because, uh, hey, uh, one of those people that you might neglect is an angel. Uh, it's like, hey, remember when Bob called and asked if he could come over and you said it's not a good night and then you never called back to follow up? Yeah, it was actually an angel. Uh, you dropped the ball there big time. Um, we don't think probably in our, about our lives interacting with people in need that way. Maybe some of you do. I have a couple incidences in my life, not recently, where I 
think I may have encountered an angel. Uh, I can think back about 20 years ago to a woman who just said something to me and it pierced my heart and she had like a glow on her face and it was in passing. I don't know. Uh, but where in the world does the writer of Hebrews get this idea that uh, we should not neglect showing hospitality to strangers because some of them might be angels? Well, it's probably a reference to Genesis 19. You may remember the story when Abraham entertained three strangers. And it says in Genesis 19, one of them was God and the other two were angels. That's where the writer of Hebrews is probably getting this idea. And the context of the ancient world sh will shed some light on this a little bit. Um, the virtue of hosting and caring for visitors was especially valued in the ancient world because travel was difficult and inns could be dangerous. So here's the challenge we have, okay? The challenge we have living in the modern world is you can get a pretty safe motel or hotel like anywhere. In the ancient world, it wasn't that way. If you were traveling through uh, or on a long journey, you often would go through or, or make a detour to stay in a town where you knew someone. Because if you had a family, you didn't want to stay in a lodge or an inn because they could be very dangerous. Uh, robbers and bandits waited around those places because they knew people were carrying money. And they were often sort of bastions of uh, immoral behavior. And if you were on a long journey, you might walk all night to go to the next town just because you, maybe you knew somebody there. So there's definitely a context to this passage here. Um, hospitality, of course, today is tricky. Uh, as Christians, if you ask yourself, and let me just, let's do an exercise here for a moment. Ask yourself, let's take a moment of silence. How hospitable am I? Just think about it for a moment. Am I a hospitable person? Now, <clears throat> being hospitable is not simply opening up your home, but that's, that's one aspect of it. And of course, we don't want to be taken advantage of. And we've probably all seen enough uh, documentaries about serial killers uh, where we're pretty leery about opening up our home to a total stranger, especially come, someone who might come to the front door. Uh, the early Christians had the same concern, too. It wasn't like it was completely um, wholesome and safe in the first century. In fact, an early Christian manual called the Didache uh, had rules for hospitality. It said, uh, don't let a prophet, it says, if you host a prophet, let it only be one night. If he asks to stay a second night, he's not a prophet. And if he asks you to give him some money, he's really not a prophet. Now, that's not gospel truth. That's just sort of like, uh, a teaching that circulated among early Christians, and I don't know exactly where that comes from, but the idea is that someone who needs lodging for a night shouldn't overstay their welcome. So there are limits. If you open your house to somebody, you don't have to let them move in and stay with you, you know, three months. It's okay to say, I can let you stay with me for a night, right? So uh, no guilt trip here. Uh, it's not a legalistic command. Um, so hospitality, there's a balance we have to find. Letting people stay in your home is not the only way we exercise hospitality. Um, there are others. But here's the rule, okay? Uh, the takeaway from this passage of scripture, sort of a rule for hospitality. There are limits to hospitality with people we don't know, but we should be open, especially if there are other believers, because that was the word to the Hebrew Christians, was that if there are other believers, particularly Gentiles, don't shut the doors of your home and your heart 
but show hospitality to strangers. And here's the main idea. Love for others, especially when it comes to hospitality, should be guided not by self-protection, uh, but by selfless giving and love. That'll look different for each of us. And then the third kingdom ethic. So the first kingdom ethic is continue to pursue brotherly love even when people annoy you, right? People get on your nerves. This is the kingdom ethic that without which we can't have mutual, uh, we can't have authentic worship, okay? Pursuing brotherly and sisterly love. He says, continue in it. Don't stop. And then the second is, uh, you know, expand your heart and be hospitable. And some of us may need to examine ourselves and realize that we're not very hospitable people. Some of us are, some of us aren't. The third kingdom ethic here is caring for those in special need. <clears throat> Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Uh, in the early days of the church, Christians were regularly jailed and imprisoned for their faith, uh, for not um, being a part of the religion of Rome, emperor worship, worshiping the Roman gods, uh, the sort of pagan pantheon. Lucian, a Greek writer in the early second century, says that if one of the Christians was imprisoned, the community of believers left no stone unturned in their endeavor to procure his release. In other words, Greeks and Romans observed that Christians deeply cared for their own, especially when they got in trouble. That if a believer was locked up in prison, that they would do everything they could to get them out. And Lucian writes that they would wait at the doors of the jail, tending to his very need, even at times bribing the prison officials to enter into the jail cell with the prisoner to worship with them. And they'd bring meals and at times ignore all risks to comfort that person. And I think what's helpful for us, because we live in a nation where we have the highest per capita rate of imprisoned people on the planet. There are 2.3 million prisoners in America. We've got more people in prison in America than China and Russia or some of the countries we see as um, totalitarian. We have more people in prison in America than any nation on the planet. And one of the things uh, people in prison often feel is forgotten. And um, the admonition for us is to remember them. That's what the passage says. Remember those who are in prison. Don't forget them. You know, we don't really live in a traditional honor and shame society. But, you know, if someone we know goes to prison, there's definitely sort of a shame factor that we feel for them. And maybe we feel that for ourselves, even being involved or even being associated with that person. But the kingdoms, the, the ethic of the kingdom, the kingdom's ethic is to care for those who are imprisoned. Um, I don't know how many of you know people who are in prison. Uh, maybe you don't. Uh, at least once a week, I thank God. Part of my testimony is that I'm not a lifer, is that I'm not doing life in prison. Um, I des for some of the things I did in my teenage years, I probably deserved to be in prison for life. I had many, many friends um, in California where I'm from uh, violate the third strike law, which is your third felony, you get life in prison, 25 to life. 
And your first felony could have been something really heinous, but um, once you get released, you could get uh, a second felony for stealing a can of Coke because once you're uh, a repeat offender, you're on parole, it doesn't take much to get a second and third felony. So I've got friends right now who are just being released from prison. I'm 47 years old. They went to prison when they were about when we were about 16, 17, and they're just getting out now. And they have nothing. They're moving in with their parents who are in their 70s. They have, um, you know, nothing at all. They're, they're trying to start their life. And some of them are still in prison. Right before I moved here to St. Louis eight years ago, I had a, my best friend uh, get out of prison. He had done 13 years. And he called me up and he said, I need somewhere to stay for a night. And I was a little afraid because he had gotten involved in a prison gang. And um, when he got out, he was a different person. And I was a little concerned. I had known him since we were kids, but he had been in and out of prison for years. And he had just finished a 13-year stretch. And I opened up my home to him prayerfully. And um, I thank God, you know, that everything was fine. And the very next day, he, you know, took a bus up north because his family had moved up north. <clears throat> but the admonition here is to think about these people. To think about the sense of abandonment they feel and to see it as an opportunity for the gospel. Now, our church doesn't have a prison ministry. I hope that's something that we can grow into and someone in our congregation might have the vision to look into and to pursue. But the idea is that the body of Christ ought to give special care for people who are not receiving any love or care, people who are abandoned people who are isolated, people who are alone, because that is exactly what God did for us in Christ. That in Christ, God pursues us by grace, and God comes to us in our isolation. God comes to us in our abandonment. And God is constantly pursuing us through the gospel, through Christ and the power of his spirit to let us know we're not alone, we're not abandoned, we're not forsaken. This is a powerful ethic of the kingdom. And maybe it's not somebody in prison, but maybe it's someone who's isolated at home, someone who's sort of a hermit, someone who doesn't have any relationships um, and uh, is not well connected. And it behooves us as the body of Christ to care for those people, especially if they're another brother or sister in Christ. You remember Jesus's words in Matthew 25, when he says, when I was in prison, you came to see about me. And so the big takeaway here is rather than avoiding or ignoring people, whether they're in prison or persecuted or isolated, out of shame or fear, we're to care for them. Listen, the gospel, one of the things it is supposed to do for us through God's spirit is cultivate in us the very heart of Christ. And part of stewarding the grace that we've been given is when we finish this Zoom call, is you might be prone to just go back to whatever activities you've got scheduled for the day, and that's okay, but to think about and prayerfully through this next week, think about how we might embody these kingdom ethics to be stewards of God's grace. Next week, we'll cover uh, the other verses in that passage, but I hope this morning that you're encouraged as you think about what it means to live in the grace of God, to live in the love of God in Christ, what it means to walk and live righteously and ethic, ethical, godly lives. Uh, let's pray. And, um, and after we pray, Hillary is going to sing another song for us. Father, 
Thanks for these ethical commands here at the end of the book of Hebrews. Thanks, O God, because you teach us and show us in different places in scripture what it looks like to live out the ethics of the kingdom, to embody the very heart of Christ for one another and the world around us, O God. Help us to think about these commands. Help us to think about, O God, how we might continue pursuing love for one another, how there may be areas in our life where uh, we can be more hospitable toward one another and even strangers. And Lord, how we might give special care to those who are isolated and alone, whether in prison or isolated at home or relationally disconnected. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do this in our hearts uh, and empower us through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.